Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. On today's show, we're talking to Brett Weinstein. Brett is an evolutionary biology professor. He appeared on Joe Rogan uh, on his own and with Jordan Peterson. And honestly, the, the interview on Joe Rogan with Jordan Peterson as well was one of the most interesting and fascinating discussions I'd listened to in a long time. And I was really keen to get Brett on after I saw that to talk about the ideas they were discussing and, you know, get his thoughts on a few other issues. We ended up talking about a lot of different things, including the left-right divide, the future implications of technology and how that can impact government, psyops, social media, and the evolutionary implications of the society we now live in. He's a really fascinating guy, and I really hope you enjoy the interview. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unison. They're currently fighting a battle against proposed cuts to the Northern Ireland Health Service, which you can read more about by following the links in the description of around 70 million pounds and if you want to support their cause then you can sign the petition in the link below that's enough from me so let's get on with the interview so brett welcome to the show thanks for having me is it is it weinstein or weinstein it is weinstein okay that that's fantastic because that means that when i mentioned it in our last podcast i pronounced it right (laughs) Excellent. Most people pronounce it incorrectly, but it is it is definitely Weinstein. Yeah, it's the school German that I did making me want to pronounce both of the uh, the EIs the same. <laughs> right. Logically speaking, I think it's the only way to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, I was I was really keen to have you on the show um, when I saw your your interview with with Joe Rogan. It was and Jordan Peterson uh, was a absolutely fascinating um three hours of my life and if anyone hasn't seen it i would definitely recommend they go and check it out um as well as your sort of one-on-one interview with joe rogan where you sort of lay out what happened to you um on your uh ill-fated experience on on as a as a professor i say ill-fated it was only the end that's the your last year that was ill-fated but (laughs) Yeah, I had a I had a, a really good run of fourteen years, and then it ended rather spectacularly. Yeah, but yeah, I don't want to focus too much on that. You know, you, you've you've spoken quite uh, extensively about it, and if anyone wants to sort of find out what what happened, they can Google your name, and it's straight up in in the news results. And you know, you can check out the podcast that you've done before with with Joe, um, and yeah, that gives a pretty comprehensive overview that I don't think I would be able to to get to. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's best left to, to those historical records, and we can talk about more interesting things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, to to immediately then draw from something that uh, happened in on the the <laughs> with your experience, um, you talked um, a lot about the the dangers essentially of the the very far left. And of of the way those ideas can can kind of run rampant, essentially, especially when unchallenged. And and when I was listening to a lot of it, part of me was wondering because I see the the social left and the economic left as two different concepts. And I was wondering if you know, given your experience with quite extreme socially left, or I don't want to say liberal because I feel like that's a poor use of the word, but those sorts of ideas do you think that there is a a distinction that can be drawn between the two sorts of 
ideologies, I don't even know if ideology is the right word, but between the two ways of thinking in, in that the economically left is obviously very much systems focused, whereas the socially left is very culturally focused to an extent. And do you think that there's a line that can be drawn there or do you think the two are too intertwined? Well, I'm, I'm fond of the idea that many ways of viewing something, of dichotomizing a particular system are useful to a point. And that what we often do is we want to find a way of categorizing something that's just simply correct. And so we fall in love with it when we spot that it reveals something and then we, we go down with the ship effectively. Um, so what I would say is there are a number of ways to look at the left-right dichotomy that contains some fraction of the truth, but really at the point that you're paying severely diminishing returns for one particular way of viewing it, you should bail out and check out the next one. So I would say a couple things. One, I'm confused by whether or not the people who believe themselves to be on the far left and are behaving in this very illiberal way really are uh, left in any meaningful sense of the term. What I find them to be is deeply authoritarian. And so one way to look at, at left-right issues that many people, many of your listeners will have encountered uh, online or, or elsewhere is a four-quadrant model in which one axis is left versus right and the other axis is authoritarian versus libertarian. And I would say that um, the explanation, if you want to understand why it is that I find myself at odds with a bunch of folks who are nominally on the same side of the political spectrum is that we are at opposite sides of the authoritarian versus libertarian spectrum. And I don't mean libertarian here in the economic sense, because I'm definitely not an economic libertarian. But I do believe that essentially the purpose of good governance is to liberate people. And that um, where I part ways with these other folks on the left is many of them want to hard code what they see as correct ideas into our speech and our legal structures. And I think it's incredibly foolish and dangerous. Um, so in any case, I would, I would, I would advise your listeners who find themselves feeling a bit adrift on the left side of the spectrum to look at the other the other axis and figure out whether or not what's really going on is that they have libertarian leanings and that they're up against an authoritarian uh, left that is not their natural ally. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that I've kind of come to like fairly recently um, in that. So I did a political compass test about nine months ago and found out that uh, according to it anyway, it was pretty in-depth. So I, I kind of took its word as being at least like reasonably true and that I'm a libertarian socialist and i didn't honestly even think that existed um <laughs> right if you you ask Rand paul he'd probably have an aneurysm uh about the idea <laughs> but um it was it was something that i kind of came to and, and figured that much like you were saying that there's more of a quadrant to it than there is a a like a just a single linear spectrum and it really sort of made me question whether I believed certain parts of more left-wing ideology and makes me sit and question them. And like in, in ways it's made me kind of look at things differently in ways it's made me um, 
like reaffirm certain beliefs I had. And it's, it's, it's definitely something that I would like advise, well, much like you said, advise people to, to do is kind of like take a really long, hard look at why you believe things. Um, because I think that the, the alternative can be quite dangerous, but well, there's, there's uh, I, I would also advise one other thing uh, I've for the last, I don't know, since maybe 2008 or so um, I've been uh, circulating in diffuse circles of people who are trying to figure out what, how to understand what's going on with civilization and what to do about it. And one thing that I think is very clear when you, when you start seeking out people who are uh, broad minded about the problems that we face and solution oriented is that every single person who is serious about solving these problems comes to a place where the slate of things that they come to believe in is eclectic and not described by any label that would be familiar. And I think there's a very natural reason for this, that we are at a point in history where uh, the only, any uh, principled and consistent uh, set of assumptions will lead you to embracing a group of things that don't fly under one political banner uh, and that that's a natural that's a natural process so freeing yourself from feeling like if you believe x y and z thing and that aligns you with these folks that you should probably believe the other things that they espouse that's almost certain to be wrong and uh feeling okay about that is is important yeah it's it kind of goes to it, it runs counter to the whole especially on the left almost and on the right to an extent but I, maybe maybe it's just that i'm not as as in tune with right wing thinking as as the left but is the the whole purity test idea that um we're seeing a lot and i find that um a lot of sort of critics of the of the left especially in american politics and actually we're having a reasonable amount of it in in the uk as well is that they demand too much of their representatives and they have to agree with this sort of carved in stone list of ideas that, well, to a lot of a lot of people on the left is just the uh, the manifesto or list of policies of Bernie Sanders, um, right? But uh, I find it I find it odd because he personally I think is is quite whilst he's very principled, he's quite malleable in what he's willing to push forward in order to achieve at least some sort of progress and personally i think that's that's a fantastic mantra to take um but what, when you were talking about people that that more author, uh, authoritarian side um about people coding things or well trying to push things into the way we interact and the way we speak and the way we um even move our hands as we as you find <laughs> um I find that anything that that tries to censor what people are saying, it should just leave alarm bells ringing, just beyond belief. Because you know, if people can't say things, they can't be told that they're wrong. And I feel that that, that I'm not sure if we've seen. And this is one of the questions. I had quite a lot of questions along this sort of line. But do you think that there is a an evolutionary equivalent of attempting to stamp out a sort of speech or action 
in in something or is this kind of a very unique construct that humanity has arrived at in the last 10 15 years um there is a what i would describe as a natural tension between orthodoxy and heterodoxy and what i would argue is that that tension is actually a an ancient evolutionary tension and that there's a time and place for both of these things. Orthodoxy is useful when you are in circumstances that your ancestors, especially your immediate ancestors understood very well. At that point, it's not a time to upend functional systems. It's a time to refine them. And so there's a way in which it becomes counterproductive to be too far afield from what is working. And then there's a point at which things become incoherent for one reason or another, and heterodoxy is the place to find the new answers. But heterodoxy is, uh, we should have trepidations about it because most heterodox thinking is probably wrong. And so it is, it is not simply that, you know, when things are no longer familiar that one should embrace heterodoxy because the question is which heterodoxy, mm. um, so anyway, what I would argue that we are seeing is a kind of conservatism, and it's ironic that it's over on the left, but that happens, or at least it's ironic in light of what the left recently was, hmm. um, because traditionally it, it has embraced heterodoxy. But at the moment, what we've got is a left orthodoxy trying to silence left heterodoxy, and it is exactly the wrong moment. I mean, it's it's really a, a it's a absolutely an existential threat to the left. It's not good for the right having a um, a an analytically defunct left is going to cause the right to be insane because it needs the tension of a vibrant intellectual left to keep it honest um, and then civilization is going to be jeopardized by the lack of a proper debate between right and left so really the the danger of the left having lost its mind in this particular way would be hard to overstate yeah, it's someone actually put it to me really fantastically the other day. Um uh, on a they just commented on a on a piece that we'd put up um about the sort of dangers of of allowing conservative or well, allowing the conservatives in the UK or the Republican Party in America to discuss censoring the internet and then there was sort of a conversation going on about you know why we've got so at odds with each other, and 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 why we, uh, what has fueled the outrage culture that we've suddenly arrived at, and and he just, I've I've not seen anyone put it so perfectly. He just said it's like we're all collectively out of patience. <laughs> um, right. I mean, I think that's half the answer. I think we are out of patience, and I think we are out of patience, and that that is not an inappropriate place to be given the level of dysfunction. The problem is we are incoherent in our response to being out of patience. Um, we are, in fact, uh, at loggerheads over whether, I mean, really, on both left and right, you have people who have arrived at the same incorrect conclusion, which is that the brokenness of the system is an argument against systems. So, you know, the anarchists on the left and the libertarians on the right are reacting to what happens when systems fail and their answer is actually the system is more trouble than it's worth and in part that's something that one concludes when you haven't seen the the alternative of minimizing that system 
is actually uh, completely non-viable. Um, so we need to be having a very intensive discussion about the tension between um, the left's tendency to want to, the left's enthusiasm for problem solving, which tends to be under-imaginative about uh, unintended consequences uh, and things like that, and the (laughs) the right's uh, skepticism of uh, solution making, which tends to be overly aggressive and tends to avoid solutions that should be carefully implemented. So we need to have that discussion about how to move forward. And instead, what we have are fringes on both sides that have uh, converged on two versions of an unregulated system that would not uh, allow humanity to continue much longer. Yeah, it's the the kind of reactionary thinking to that the is is going on on both sides is i don't know to me i feel like it's kind of a result of the situation that we've got ourselves into and it's a difficult place to get back from essentially um the, like i have a theory that all almost all political sort of outrage and distress and and dysfunction in the world can be explained to an extent by economic hardships and and economic distress um and for example something something i've noticed is that in the uk we have a thing called prime minister's questions so every week in parliament when it's when it's in session uh for an hour or hour and a half the prime minister and the well the leader of the opposition for most of it are going back and forth just sort of the anyone in the house uh of par- houses of parliament in the commons can put forward questions to the prime minister but it ends up mostly being a back and forth between the leader of the opposition and the prime minister and i used to find it really entertaining to watch and and really really just i don't know a good good debate good politics and it wasn't always about any anything substantive it was a lot of point scoring and a lot of jeering and but i i've got to the point where i i just can't quite watch it anymore i just i get angry and have to turn it off because <laughs> the the leader of the opposition will say you know what are you going to do about outrageous student debt and the the prime minister will start talking about how 20 years ago his party brought in tuition fees and it's like but that's like stop giving such trivial answers to like genuine serious issues that we have and it just like i i was trying to sort of get a grasp on how you how you combat these serious problems in systems without becoming just an angry man who can't have a reasonable discussion? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think the thing is reasonable discussion is still possible. It's harder to get to. There's sort of a, it's blocked by a layer of vitriol that makes it, I mean, part of the reason that the podcast with uh, Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan's program, I think was so, well received was that people were hungry to hear people who honestly disagree, but were willing to discuss their differences and have it not be personal and have a a sort of collective understanding that we are all enhanced by the conversation being candid and vibrant rather than by scoring points. 
So the, I think the problem is that our political systems have so much at stake that effectively they cannot afford to be candid. And uh, that's a danger to us. I think that's we have to address the fact that the political systems, which is where solution making is supposed to occur, is actually maybe the place where it is least likely to occur because um, that which is to be won and lost cause no opportunity to, uh, you know, play gotcha with your opposition to be bypassed. So uh, that's really something for, for us in the public to reckon with, that the systems, and in large measure we're talking about, you know, systems that were built out of 18th century materials in, in many cases or, or even earlier in some, um, that the, there's no reason to expect those systems to function in the internet age. Mm. And I don't think we should be shy about the idea that in order that we all stand to lose a great deal and maybe everything, if we do not retool the system so that it um, can uh, foster honest discussion about a path forward that if we're frank, everybody will realize nobody knows what that path is. Mm. Frankly, my, my personal rule is that anybody who thinks they know the answer about what we're supposed to do next in a general and complete sense, they're not even in the discussion. <laughs> you first have to realize how, how new and complicated our predicament is before you're even ready to talk about what we might do next. Um, so, yeah, it's, we're in an odd time. Um, and I actually wanted to get to sort of the, the ramifications of technology, but, uh, before we, we kind of get to that, I was wondering if you had an opinion on the effect of, well, so there's a, a lot of suggestion yeah. that the, the Russian sort of hacking of the election to an extent wasn't through fake news, as is what's been sort of promoted as the reason that they, I hate the word, hacked the election. Because it just it, it just makes me imagine some person at a computer next to the, the voting machines. And I'm like, well, that's probably not what happened. Let's be quite honest here. Um, but the idea that they, through use of bots, sort of, pushed little buttons and bought ads that on issues that were very polarizing, like guns, like abortion and things like that. And, and just sort of pushed enough people's buttons to get a bigger reaction. And it's actually something South Park talked about. And I'm not sure if they coined the term, but it's called Trevor's Axiom, where a troll or a bot isn't trying to anger the victim that they're or the person that they're attacking what they're looking for is people to rush to the defense of the victim in such a way that it then triggers people who maybe don't necessarily agree with the troll but think that the other people are going way too far and overreacting and therefore might have had a really minimal actual amount of people or money being spent on on bots and on trolling but the impact was sort of ex grew exponentially once you get that sort of critical mass of people shouting at each other. And it's actually something that has come out recently that the UK government are spending money on, on psyops in, in other countries in sort of posts and bots. And it's something that is, is becoming 
understood to be quite widely used by a lot of people in order to manipulate things even like Reddit or Twitter. And I was sort of wondering what you felt the the implications of that were and what the well either sort not end game is, but sort of where you think that might push us and if if you thought it was even a legitimate concern. Uh, it's beyond a legitimate concern, but there is also something surreal about the way it is being discussed and focused upon. So uh, it's it's going to take a certain amount of willingness to. Uh, I'm going to put my neck out here a little bit and and talk about this Russian hacking stuff and hmm. what's wrong with the analysis. Okay, that's fine. Um, You're not the first person we've had on who's who's disagreed with any mainstream analysis of we had someone on uh we had elizabeth voss from disobedient media who was incredibly critical of of the uh, coverage of the russian story so well yes i mean i'm there's lots of criticism but the problem is the danger of saying what needs to be said i think is substantial but i'm gonna i'm gonna take a crack at it here because i think it's important and you know let the chips fall where they may um there's obviously something troubling, if you believe in democracy, as I do, in a foreign power manipulating an election. There's also something duplicitous about the presentation of this as Russian hacking, because um, the, the idea of Russian hacking has been sold far beyond the evidence that an actual hack took place. In fact, the distinction between hack and leak is a very important one that points in some kind of frightening directions you know in other words a hack americans are so um primed especially americans my age or older are so primed uh, to view uh russia as this boogeyman that um that it is an obvious mechanism whereby americans can be manipulated into behaving in ways they would not otherwise behave because of fears that uh, are built around having grown up during the Cold War. Um, but here's the, here's the thing that I'm troubled by. A foreign power manipulating your election. Let's just acknowledge that probably some kind of manipulation took place. Okay. You know, it could just be the shaping of conversations with sock puppets online or something like that. <laughs> um, that, that is, uh, not desirable. It is a corruption of democracy. And therefore, it is something to be guarded against and discussed. On the other hand, let's talk about what Russia's interests were in this last election. Russia could have simply wanted to turn the United States into a client state. It could have had something on Trump and wished to get him elected so that its leverage could be useful to it in some sort of cynical way. It could also legitimately have feared uh, Clinton's warmongering and wished Trump to be elected so that Clinton did not push the push Russia and the United States into a needless and extremely dangerous conflict. So that is actually a place in which the Russians might have been aligned with the interests of Americans who do not want to pay for a very expensive new Cold War, nor do they want to run the risk of getting into a an unpredictable conflict with a ferociously powerful nuclear state. Um, so we don't know. We don't know what happened and we don't know to what end. If something happened to what end it was on the other hand, 
What we Americans do know is that our elections have been compromised by very powerful domestic economic forces um, for, you know, much more than a generation. Mm. And so I guess my question would be, when investment banks or oil companies corrupt our election, we can be pretty sure that they are corrupting our electoral process, whether they do it through legal means or not, and typically it is legal, which I think is neither here nor there. When they manipulate our elections with uh, huge amounts of cash designed to sway our choices, we can be pretty sure that they are not trying to sway us in the direction that is healthy for us as a population. They would not need to spend that money. If the argument was really? the policies that they... What? Really? <laughs> Sorry. The oil companies don't have our best interests at heart? What? All I'm saying is that <laughs> there is a... Well, but I mean, just realize the distinction I'm trying to point out. No, I know. It is possible that if Russia was trying to manipulate our election, it is possible that they were trying to manipulate uh, us against our own interests, and it is possible that they were actually trying to avoid a war that is against their interests, against our interests, but for some reason... Uh, might have been, you know, the kind of thing that Clinton would have risked. And so I think, well, the point I'm trying to make is not that there is nothing troubling about Russia manipulating an American election. I'm very troubled by the possibility that that happened. I'm also troubled by the um, fact that there's been a lot of ink spilled on it with much less evidence than I would have expected to see. Mm. But I'm more troubled by the fact that our electoral process has been completely compromised somehow for no reason that i can identify less troubled when the corruption is domestic in origin even though the corruption you know in the case of uh fossil fuel companies that corruption could you know it's an existential threat to humanity to block climate treaties for example um or you know when it's investment banks the financial collapse of 2008 suggests that there's a tremendous hazard to us in investment banks uh, guiding policy uh, to their own betterment, that this comes at huge public expense. So I would like us to become focused on the fact that our electoral systems are not capable of dealing with the modern era. And that does expose us to foreign powers manipulating our elections. It also exposes us to equally or more dangerous domestic powers manipulating our elections. And really, we need a rethink that solves the larger problem of how do we make democracy function in a technological age like ours um, rather than focusing on the, the foreign Russian aspect of it in particular. Yeah, that's that's a very, very fair and, and well-presented point. Um, I think the, the most horrifying part about it is the fact that this corruption and this sort of buying of elections by large uh large amounts of well large groups with even larger piles of money to to burn is uh signed sealed and rubber stamped by the supreme court yes it is <laughs> with their whole still to me utterly illogical money is speech ruling it's with citizens united um Still yep. do not, for the life of me, understand. Especially from a group who are meant to be insulated from the influence of money. I just, I'm not quite sure where the reasoning came from. 
Um, that is one. Well, I mean, you know, we actually know where the reasoning came from, and it's you know, it's kind of a mundane error. Um, I mean, you know, it's not it's not entirely wrong. Do you have the right to print up as many pamphlets as you want saying something? that you believe. Well, yeah, the First Amendment protects your printing of pamphlets, and so you're spending money to speak, and you're amplifying your voice by not just being in one place, but being in every place you can put a pamphlet. And so there is a sort of, at the bottom of this, right to broadcast your voice in ways does require money in some way and then the point is then there's a point at which it becomes absurd at which you know you're you're giving ge the ability to to speak so loudly that other people speaking can't even be heard um and you know again i would say the real problem is the 18th century conception of what is necessary to protect the free exchange of ideas is just totally inadequate to you know, I mean, the founding fathers never saw a train or a bicycle. They they had no way of intuiting what television would be like, much less the internet, um, much less uh, focus groups and big data. You know, this is an this is an environment they had no idea would occur. And I don't think we should. I think we should rescue the principles that they discovered that are still as viable as ever. And we should recognize that, of course, the mechanisms they put forward are inadequate for our era. And we should we should try to save the principles and jettison the the details of the mechanisms because they're they're just out of date. Just before we move on, um, what would you how do you, how would you suggest that we begin to reexamine the systems? Are we talking constitutional convention, or is even that too built into the the system that needs re-examining. Well, I must say, this is a place I've changed my mind. I used to think constitutional convention was the only way, but the problem with constitutional convention is imagine you open a constitutional convention in this era in which we haven't solved the question of, for example, manipulating conversations uh, online, in which we haven't dealt with the influence that Google and Facebook potentially have on such a process or foreign governments or whatever it is. So um, let's just say in discussions with other people who see the problem in similar terms as I do, we have started to think way outside the box of conventional solution making. Um, And I think the, the thing that I've been saying to people is we are in need If we are to survive as a species, we are in need of revolutionary change, and we absolutely cannot afford revolution. So the question is, how do you get revolutionary change to occur when revolution itself is not viable as a mechanism? I mean, it won't work at global scale. It runs the risk of, uh, you know, that the WHO covered so effectively – uh, that we will be fooled again. Hmm. Um, so all of those things are hazards. And the other the flip side of that coin is if you look at the way life has changed in just the last couple of decades, our lives have been revolutionized, right? They have been revolutionized by mechanisms that have taken over because they uh, were useful enough that people embraced them uh, out of self-interest. 
And I would say some mechanism like that is the, I think, the only plausible way forward, that uh, a better structure for governance for planet Earth will take hold as a result of its superiority to the antiquated systems that are now failing all around us. Mm. And that this could be uh, a, it must be a much less violent revolutionary process and one that will serve the interests of people by virtue of the fact that it is um, designed to do so at, um, at minimum cost and frankly, uh, limiting people's liberties to a minimum extent. You know, we all sign up for contracts, right? Contracts that benefit us. Those contracts provide us things and they limit us in other ways. And there is a mechanism whereby civilization can be restructured essentially by um, contractual obligations to each other um, that spell out relationships that are superior to the, um, the ones that we currently have. Okay, there's 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 sort of two things that I I kind of want to unpack there with what you said. Uh, first of all, I could be wrong and I could be naive, but I personally feel that that sort of revolution without revolution almost took place in uh, in both the UK and you could almost argue it did in the US, just not the the sort of revolution without revolution that we perhaps need. Um, in that, in America, you had a candidate who ticked every single box as a as a presidential candidate in Hillary Clinton. Did everything that you're supposed to do. Gave all the right speeches. Raised all the money. Spent all the money on ads. Targeted the right voters in a lot of the right states, and you know came up short with you know national name recognition experience in government experience in congress and and yet she came up she came up short and on the complete flip side to that you had bernie sanders who well and donald trump but i'll start with sanders who had no national name recognition no money no national infrastructure no media connections really no no support within the party um be that the party establishment the superdelegates within the democratic sort of nomination system or just the democrats in in the senate aside from well there was keith ellison but i can't think of any more who from the beginning were, were even considering supporting him and yet he against a corrupted uh, nomination system in which the DNC have openly admitted they were quite openly <laughs> opposed to him and 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 doing everything well, in their part. Yeah, rig the primary. Yeah, assen- like to essentially like they just were willing to go to whatever lengths necessary. You know, no debates. Try and get as many early votes in as possible. You know, the, try and manipulate media narratives. Try and pass questions to their candidate. Super delegates. Yeah, like, and yet he came so close. Like, he, what, what did he end up with? Forty-three percent of the of the votes. Incredible, like really, really incredible. And and Trump is 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 a 
a flip side of the same phenomenon, I think, in that people realize that that sort of revolutionary change is necessary in order for humanity to move forwards. They've just maybe been fooled a little bit into thinking that he's for them, that he's the man that is going to provide that revolutionary change. And in the UK, we, we've seen something very similar, like Jeremy Corbyn, who, you know, for all his sort of maybe doubts that people had about him, for all the, the he spent 18 months having the media just sling shit at him, essentially, for being a, a communist, for being, you know, just in everything they could find, because he didn't want to wear a poppy at one point, because he, you know, didn't want to sing the national anthem just lots of ridiculous things um, that seemingly don't really mean that much for, for trying to reform the system. But And he, he has, most of the establishment have his, his party against him and, and he is now stronger than ever. Like he, The last election, just he, he suddenly rode this wave of people realizing that change was required and he was the most viable choice for that change. Um, he didn't quite get over the line in the election, but post-election, he's continued to enjoy a bounce. And I'm pretty sure if there was an election held, as he would like <laughs> next month, um, that he, he would be looking at potentially being our, our prime minister. And I feel that we're, we're maybe a lot closer than people realize to that change, to kind of make my point. Um, <laughs> in one way, in one way, yes. And in another way, no. I mean, I think this is, you, you've hit on exactly the right point. So in the U.S., what we had was two insurgencies. We had an insurgency on the left and an insurgency on the right. The DNC um, barely defeated the left insurgency with all sorts of skullduggery and um, ugly tinkering. Yeah. But nonetheless, they defeated the left insurgency. And that left the right insurgency as the only insurgency on the map, which caused it to win. Um, and it's because it's an insurgency built around a, a effectively a cult of personality um, where the personality in question doesn't appear to be especially public minded. And I mean, is in fact the opposite <laughs> um, that it's not going to result in uh, the kind of transition necessary, but here's the frightening part. I think if the left had failed to defeat its insurgency and Bernie Sanders had won the nomination, I think there's a very strong likelihood he would have won the presidency. And I think there's a very strong likelihood that nothing important would have changed. That's my fear. That's and so what I'm, what I'm go ahead. No, I was, no, I was just, just thinking that's, that's a, a scary thought, but, but keep going there. Sorry. But I think I think this is really my point, is the structure is now, for a couple of different reasons, incapable of being changed through standard mechanisms. And so, you know, I, I'm not in complete agreement with Bernie Sanders, but he was the only honest candidate in the race. And I do agree with him on a great many things, including some basic value stuff that I think does rise to the highest level of importance yeah but 
uh, you know, and I, so I was very supportive of Sanders, but I was under no illusion and I would have easily predicted that had he been elected, he would have been frustrated by mechanisms that effectively through one means or another have um, made meaningful change almost impossible. And at the same time, what we have is meaningful change arising through other mechanisms, but not in the public interest. So cell phones or smartphones have changed the way life works. They've changed it dramatically, but they didn't do so in the public interest. We got a lot from the transition and we've given up a lot for the transition because it was privately motivated. Um, so my point would be, any way we come at this, I think we're going to arrive at the same place, which is the systems that we are stuck with have honorable values uh, at their core. They have some other stuff that isn't honorable at their core, but they are simply a terrible match for the technological age that we exist in. And somehow we're going to have to uh, utilize mechanisms that exist outside of those structures in order to restore human well-being to the primary objective of the systems that govern us. Unison are currently challenging all five health and social care trusts in Northern Ireland to refuse to make further £70 million cuts demanded by the Department of Health. Unison are demanding that the trusts now say that they will not implement the cuts that have been demanded halfway through the financial year because most of the services that they're proposing to make cuts to are already at breaking point. They feel that there will be an acceptable waiting list that will get even longer and patient care will suffer as a result of these cuts. If you want, you can check out the speech that Stephanie Greenwood, the Joint Branch Chair of Unison, gave at a local consultation that we attended, and you'll be able to read more about the proposed cuts in an article we'll be putting out later in the week. If you'd like to support Unison in their fight against these cuts, you can sign the petition in the link below and check out their website in order to find out more about the campaign that they're currently running. Yeah, that, that actually kind of brings us on to, to another point I wanted to make. So it's kind of two questions in, in one. The first of is kind of going back to something you mentioned there about the need for outside forces to change the systems that just because of their convenience and their sort of adoption just through its utility in in other assets not or in other facets sorry not not necessarily just to the way it can change the system but the the other benefits it have isn't it? first of all i want to ask whether you thought that that was kind of a blockchain ai government or something along that a lot something along those uh, something some sort of fusion of those two sort of concepts and whether you thought that there was beyond just the kind of cultural and societal ramifications of of the rapid sort of introduction of technology that we've kind of got more like the generation that exists now of people like aside from all our sort of millennials generation x baby boomer stuff like the people who exist now have more power and information at their fingertips than any generation ever like infinitely more do you think do you think that there is an evolutionary ramification for the way we 
progress as as like a species and do do you, or and do you think that perhaps the people who you know learn to best utilize that technology will win out eventually or is that being optimistic <laughs> um yeah boy did you ask a set of important <laughs> uh deeply interconnected questions so let me let me uh take a first pass on on the questions you asked okay um first of all i think blockchain is an excellent example of exactly what i'm suggesting here now you've linked it to ai and ultimately ai linked to blockchain is a very powerful idea until we solve the problems that many of us have realized a company um, AI, hmm. we have to separate these two things. So I do believe a blockchain solution, something with uh, contractual capacity built on top of currency, does point the way to how you would construct a solution without having to, um, you know, confront the structures built to prevent meaningful change, however they, however they became um, dominant. So yes, blockchain, AI, maybe eventually, but boy, you don't want to go that direction haphazardly. No, that's a whole other kettle of fish, really. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, we are going this way haphazardly because the algorithms that are managing our search and our news feeds are, it's the paperclip problem um, in another form where because it's not physical robots, we don't recognize that the paperclip problem is already occurring. Uh, you, you know what I mean by the paperclip problem? I'm not really familiar with the idea, unless you're referring to the Microsoft Word paperclip. No, no. Well, I mean that <laughs> one. I think that was nature's way of warning us what's coming. But uh, in in uh, in AI circles, there there is just a, a thought problem um, that is used to illustrate the danger of AI getting away from you, which is somebody tells some artificially intelligent entity to make as many paper clips as possible and the ai takes it literally and starts dismantling the universe to make paper clips and then you say oh wait no that's not what we meant we meant make as many paper clips as you can do at blah 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 and it regards the attempt to reprogram it as in conflict with the mission of making more paper clips and you know so anyway, okay, yeah, no, the I'm, idea I'm familiar is, with the problem, just not the term, but okay. Right, okay. Go so um, so anyway, my point is, this is actually kind of happening with search algorithms and things, where we uh, do-gooders are trying to adjust discussion through algorithms that will, for example, do away with fake news. But then you would have to define fake news, wouldn't you? And um, the point is, you're going to have algorithms deciding what's fake and what's real, and the problem is, how do you protect the rare, deep truth buried in heterodox space from an algorithm trying to protect people from stuff that's not right? Mm. But in fact, it's just ahead of its time, so you can't tell it's right yet. Um, so anyway, uh, so uh, blockchain, yes. AI, we got to be very, very careful. Mm. And so for the moment, I would argue you... You want to separate those two concepts. Okay, yeah, that, it, um, it is a way off. I do think that we're... I think that 
people like Elon Musk and his open AI project are, are on the right sort of track with trying to make everything as public and open and accessible and, and collaborative as possible in that they're going to have thousands of the greatest minds working on this all collaborating and you know essentially it's 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 almost peer review in with with ai and that everyone is trying to refine and improve each other's work and i think that that's the way that it that's the best way that we can go uh, with it as a as humanity sort of trying to research it without it getting away from us because it's going to happen either way and to be open and as you know collaborative as possible i think is the best way but but well know. i mean actually you know you, you could hardly have delivered it a more a nastier insult than uh saying that it's analogous to peer review um because <laughs> <laughs> peer review is like it's like diving into the oh, cesspool well, yeah, I, I, first. I, I, I mean it's sort of like the idealistic version of what peer review is meant oh, to be utopian peer review yeah yes well i'm sure utopian peer review would be very nice but um <laughs> but yeah no i must say i think you know it, i i i don't want to pretend that i know more about musk and um his solution of the open ai project than i actually do know but i would say i, I have a sneaking suspicion that the problem is um that this is a solution that is uh, constrained that the borders of the solution that uh, fly under that um, that flag actually prevents you from discovering the only things that will actually work. In other words, the solutions to the problem of runaway AI uh, or malevolent AI exist outside of the framework of open. In other words, I think there is a what I would say is a naive desire to preserve a kind of libertarian ideal that is understandably part of the Silicon Valley ethos because it's necessary to innovation. And so, you know, all of the people at the top of the Silicon Valley um, hierarchy have effectively gotten there because they were free enough to innovate um, this, that, and the other. And so it is not surprising that they find freedom to innovate as this top value but they are now running up against the puzzle in which they have to think in a different way because the puzzle can't be solved uh, if you treat freedom to innovate uh, as sacred. In other words, you cannot be free to integrate, uh, to innovate a, an AI that is capable of destroying humanity just because nobody can spell out what the danger is ahead of time. We have to have some regulatory apparatus and, you know, Yes, it's all well and good that you may want to expose the best minds and have them see if they spot anything off track. But I don't think it would be difficult to imagine scenarios in which the best minds that happen to have grown up at some particular moment in history fail to anticipate uh, the consequences of some um, protocol uh, down the road. So um, anyway, we... Uh, we have, I've lost track of the second part of the yeah, question you wanted to ask. It was quite huge. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Uh, yeah. uh, remind me. It was the sort of was. evolutionary ramifications of, of technology. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is, in some ways, 
the biggest topic that we human beings have to deal with at the moment. And we've been hinting at it in this discussion already. Um, I call it the novelty problem. The novelty problem requires you to just do one little adjustment to uh, the evolution that you probably learned in school. So we learn that, that evolution adjusts creatures and makes them fit uh, their environment. It increases the degree to which they fit their environment. And this is true empirically, but it's really not what evolution is doing. Evolution fits creatures to their past environments, and it is only because past environments tend to look like present and future environments that creatures come to fit the environment that they live in better and better. This is why evolution works, is that past environments tend to look enough like um, present environments that an adjustment to a past environment tends to work in the present. But for human beings, we are altering our environment so rapidly that being adapted to the environment even that our parents lived in leaves us woefully underprepared for the environment that we must face. Even the environment that we face as children doesn't prepare us for the environment that we will face as adults. And so the problem is, at this pace of change, selection does not function. It's so noisy that we are effectively in a persistent state of ill health, psychologically and physiologically, because the things that we encounter are just ones for which we have no evolutionary preparedness. Just as a quick tiny little uh, insert here. Do you think that is part of the reason for the rise in mental health problems amongst young people? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we, we, we haven't even fully recognized why. This is, this is the reason that we are so unhealthy physically and mentally and socially. All of our systems are out of whack because the influences are just ones for which we are neither evolutionarily nor developmentally prepared. And so the consequences of interacting with such stuff is arbitrary. Occasionally you'll produce something new and you can interact with it just fine. And then sometimes you'll produce something new and it will cause some kind of uh, unhealthy pattern to emerge. And you may never know which influence it was that caused the unhealthy pattern because our lives are so complex that it is very hard to track uh, a particular influence and its um, consequence. But in any case, um, we are we are going to have to rein in the pace of change if we are to restore healthiness at all of the levels that we need to restore it: physiological, um, developmental, and social. Those systems require us to, to bring change under control such that um, we can prepare ourselves for that which we're going to encounter. And we can discover those things that, while they may seem safe enough, are actually very dangerous to us. Okay. So when you say rein in change, do you, is that putting a, I don't know, a cap on, on our rate of technological advancement. I'm not really sure like how, how you go about that. Like uh, Moore's law is kind of coming to an end and there are things that will extend it beyond um, what is kind of capable at the moment in terms of like processing sort of efficiency and, and, and that sort of thing in, in terms of computer speeds. But, the, and that's the only real like 
very physical measure that I can think of just off the top of my head of, of the advancement of technology. I think it's a reasonably good metric for sort of assessing the level of change that we've had in, in terms of sort of technological advancement. So what do you, when you say you want to rein in the amount of change, where do you, where do you even start there? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly big topic, but let's just start with the most uh, critical. Okay. It does not make sense to expose children, for example, to whatever the market has most recently come up with, with no understanding of what effect it's going to have. Um, This makes sense whether we're talking about uh, chemicals in the food supply or whether we're talking about um, online phenomena that will have unknown effects on uh, developmental processes or whether we're talking about pharmaceuticals. Um, The idea is the earlier in life you encounter some novel phenomenon, the greater the disruption it is capable of causing. In other words, if you are disrupted uh, as an infant in some physiological way by some chemical that you're interacting with, well, then its effect is potentially going to exist for the rest of your life. You may develop an allergy. You may um, have a particular feedback system disrupted or something like that. If you encounter that same chemical at 75 years of age, well, it may not be good for you, but the amount of your uh, life that is disrupted is less because you will have fewer years after that encounter. But also the fact that it is not interfacing with your development means that you're safer, that things that would be would have been developmentally dangerous, you may be able to tolerate as an adult who's already been through development and had it finished in a healthy way. So we should be doing a much better job of protecting children, for example, from influences, both informational influences, what they encounter online, um, chemical influences, uh, and we should figure out what environments actually provide the provide the experiences that create a healthy adult mindset um, rather than being arbitrary or even worse, allowing the market to decide what our children encounter. Mm. It's actually something I, so I spent about seven years working as a waiter sort of through school and and, uh, university and whatnot. And something that I noticed a lot that I would have never had access to even like I'm only 23 and I would have never had the ability to just be given an iPad at dinner to keep me quiet. You know, like my mom used to have, she always tells me she would always have crayons and paper. No matter where we went, that was just always what she had. And then sort of once I was older than that, I remember I would have always had a book. And the, like I might not have, like I would have read it maybe once out of the 10 times that I was sat down doing things, but I would have always had it there. And those are things that, much to your point about the future looking much like the past, or the present looking much like the past, is that crayons and paper and books have been around for a long time. But the sort of stimulation that comes from an iPad or a phone or something like that is is something that's very new to humanity and i kind of feel for for children who are who are even just 
growing up as a little bit younger than I was because I feel like I was lucky in that I was the last generation to not have that from such an early age and in that I used to live in 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 England in the in the middle of nowhere so we had no no decent internet connection so even even though the internet was sort of in its fledgling years and it was sort of starting to become the big thing it is it, there wasn't really much point in trying to use it because we had a dial-up modem that took four hours to connect and you know, someone wanted to use the phone and you had to start again and you'd be screaming. It's like, no, I was almost there. And AOL became the bane of your life. <laughs> but uh, I'm surprised you remember that at 23. Yeah. It's like you're too young to have dealt with dial-up. Yeah, no, I, I, I just have sort of early memories of uh, of looking up uh, lyrics to songs and I actually remember thinking that so I when I would like be learning to play them on my guitar or whatever and uh, like remember thinking like why are all the lyrics to all the songs not here surely that should be just the way things are and obviously that's the way things are now but I <laughs> I think it was quite a, a profound thought for for little Josh to have <laughs> <laughs> But um, sort of to, t- to take us back to to the point you you were you were making, what do you think the impl- do you know what the implications are going to be for people who are now growing up with that level of stimulation? Is there like a again to sort of put it in your wheelhouse? Is there an evolutionary equivalent of having this sort of unknown in the lives of children? Um. Yes and no. So I would say, first of all, um, we evolutionists have a term that you have to be a little bit careful with, but is very valuable if you if you learn how to wield it correctly. Um, which is so there's an abbreviation, the EEA. EEA is the Environment of Evolutionary Adaptedness, and what it means. So it, I think it is misused in by most members of my field. Um, to mean essentially the Pleistocene, the Stone Age, um, as the environment in which uh, humans spent such a long period of evolutionary history that we should assume that our characteristics are adapted to it. So if you imagine hunter-gatherers on the plains of Africa, you'd say that's the EEA. Well, I would argue there is no EEA for humans. There's an EEA for each trait. Um, And so some traits, like our ability to digest lactose um, as adults, that's obviously something that evolved after farming because there was no reason for adults to digest a milk sugar um, before we had domesticated dairy cows uh, or goats or whatever, whatever it was, bovids. Um, So the EEA is the environment that explains a particularly a particular adaptive trait. My brother, Eric Weinstein, who uh, is by training a mathematician, but has uh, he's a very broad-minded thinker on a, a lot of different topics, including uh, evolutionary theory, he has coined the term uh, EEN, the environment of evolutionary novelty. And effectively, the point is, this is the environment where more things than not are actually outside of our evolutionary experience. Um, and we should be wary of that fact. And so 
Is it true that no ancestral population has landed in, in an EEN, an environment of evolutionary novelty? No. But when population, so imagine, for example, the, uh, the first Hawaiians. Hawaii is uh, about the most remote landmass on Earth. It's just really far from everything else. Yeah. And Polynesians found it. You know, Polynesia obviously is uh, a, a group of islands. And these people who were, who found all of these Polynesian islands eventually found Hawaii and became uh, the Hawaiian population. In moving from Polynesia to Hawaii, the, uh, the Polynesians brought some stuff with them, some animals, for example. But there's a limited amount that you can bring, um, you know, on these, these narrow boats that they use to transition this giant gap from the closest Polynesian islands. So Hawaii was an evolutionarily novel environment for the Polynesians in most regards. On the other hand, they had basic, a basic understanding of how to make a living in an island habitat, and it would have to be retooled for the particular species that are found in Hawaii. And in particular, Hawaii being so far from any mainland uh, is a low diversity habitat. It's tropical, which would tend to push it in the direction of high diversity, but because it's so far from all of the source uh, populations of species, um, it has uh, naturally a very low species count. So those Polynesians would have faced such a circumstance. And I would argue that that is an extreme case of something that has been very common in human history, which is human beings moving from one niche to another. Every time humans move from one niche to another, they face some level of this problem of novelty. And so we can tolerate it. In fact, I would argue that we are the creature whose niche is the switching of niches. If you think back over the last, what you know, of the last six million years, uh, that's the point at which humans branched off from chimpanzees. We have again and again and again, each population has changed what it does for a living. And in order to do that, it has to deal with the novel consequences. So what we are facing in the present is an extreme version of something that has been very common. And what we need to do is rein in the, um, the degree of novelty so that it is manageable. And then we need to utilize the tools that are built into us evolutionarily for dealing with novel circumstances. Um, and we are not doing that. The conservatism that afflicts us is preventing us from figuring out how most elegantly to deal with all of the new phenomena that we are faced with. So how would you suggest that – so actually this this kind of brings us on to another thing I was wanting to discuss with you. It was kind of our – that we do have inherent things built into our genetics, but that we also – it's something you talked about with Joe Rogan actually, is that we have the evolutionary toolkit to choose the traits that we want to advance as humans. And I guess you could apply that as well to the – sort of technology or environments that we want to expose ourselves to and that we again have the choice ultimately tell me if you feel that that's a too broad a, a, an association to make there <laughs> no uh so I, I think this is a topic that is about to break into the open so 
in recent years, many important thinkers have engaged the question of um, free will in a new way. And so there's a sophisticated and I think largely correct view that free will is a more limited trait than we would like to imagine. Um, on the other hand, I think there's a part of this discussion that has yet to be properly addressed, which is to say, yes, it is true that we are less free than we would like to think. We are also the freest of all creatures and probably the freest creature that has ever existed. And what's more, the landscape of where we are free and where we are constrained is quite arbitrary. In other words, there's some places that we would like to be free that we have very little say, that we are so tightly wired in some direction that there's not much we can do. There are other places where we just were lucky to be far freer than we might have been. So the production of babies, for example. Just so happens that biology handed us a gift and it made uh, sex extremely fun, but it didn't make <laughs> baby production extremely fun. Right. If baby production were extremely fun, then there'd be no hope of reigning in population. Mm. Um, the fact that the two things are not the same means that actually reigning in population is something over which we have a great deal of control. And that that's true, whether you're talking about your family and whether or not to have children now or to delay them for a decade or whatever. Um, it's also true societally that we we have uh, an ability to modify that parameter. And that parameter has a lot to say on about the quality of life and things like that. So we are not completely free creatures any more than we are born blank slates, but we are um, as blank a slate as has ever existed. And we are as free as any creature that has ever existed. And we have, I do believe we have sufficient freedom to architect a future that actually serves our values rather than our genes, obsessive desire to be passed on. And that that's what we should be doing. We should recognize the passing on genes. That's what, that's what our genes want to be sure. And that's um, not honorable and ends in disaster. If we don't uh, a recognize that ultimately that's what, that's what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but that we have the ability to swap out effectively our prime directive for a prime directive that actually makes sense um, and that we, sh we should be doing that. So I don't know how well that answers your question, but I do think we have the capacity to pick and choose what we transport into the future, that that freedom to pick and choose is not by any means perfect freedom. Some stuff we're going to be stuck with, but a great many other things we do have enough power to architect a future that makes sense intelligently rather than just suffer some arbitrary slate of characteristics yeah i guess this is the sort of two things i want to i want to say about that that i think this is where the ideas behind the whole everything is a social construct um thinking almost have it right in a lot of ways and that they they make you look at the exact reasons behind the way we behave and go are we are we actually wired like this or is this just the way we've been brought up and it, it it it's obviously a debate that hasn't fully been settled and there are genetic obviously you know you know better than i do that there are genetic reasons for a lot of our behavior but there's also 
social reasons and the and sort of the whole nature versus nurture argument in that you know there are are the way that we're brought up in certain ways does impact the way we then look at the world and the way we behave and the the there's obviously distinctions to be made but i think that the the thinking that we have that to take a long hard look at it is and and go right why why do i do this or why do i think this is is actually a very useful way of not only reaffirming what is your genuine genuinely held beliefs but what is something that maybe someone's sort of put in your own head uh and i was curious as to whether you felt that this sort of choice that you're suggesting that we we can make in a lot of uh, areas is something that we have to do as individuals or have to do as like small communities or as nations or as a species as a whole great question um so first of all let me say um the most troubling the most troubling uh bit of insight that i think i have to offer is this one the fact that something is cultural rather than genetic in no way implies that it is not biological and evolutionary. This is something that the field of evolutionary biology has yet to properly settle. But when it does properly settle it, it's going to turn out that the fact that something is a quote-unquote social construct (laughs) does not say anything at all about it being independent of biology and evolution. In fact, in general, any social construct that is longstanding will be guaranteed to be evolutionary and, worst of all, will be there serving the interests of the genes. Could you give us an example um, just like so, so, so to, to kind of sort of give that more sure. specific? Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, religious belief, for example. Okay. Uh, so religious belief um, can seem very arbitrary. And the fact that religious belief is at odds with a um, an empirical understanding of the universe would seem to argue that it is some sort of quirk. But you will notice that in history, it is not true that the atheists are constantly defeating the confused faithful. That is not the nature of history. The faithful um, are, there must be atheists in every population at all times, but um, they are constantly being displaced by the faithful. And so the point would be all of that stuff, and this is part of what we talked about in that podcast with Peterson on Joe Rogan's show, um, the beliefs that are being espoused by people of religious faith are beliefs that have placed the populations that espouse them at some kind of advantage. Um, and what kind of advantage? Well, it's put them in a position to spread the genomes that hold those beliefs, even though the beliefs can be swapped out. The genome, you know, if you're uh, born in China of Chinese parents and then you're moved to the U.S. and raised by, I don't know, Protestants of some kind, uh, you know, the fact that your genome comes from China doesn't say anything about what your, your belief structure will be. Um, so the, the software can be swapped out, but the software is serving the genes interests, um, which is not a good thing. I must point 
out because what the genes want is frankly mind numbing and indefensible. Um, but in any case, that will serve as an example. So would virtually any other longstanding uh, behavioral trait of human beings that has obvious cost mm -hmm. from musical tradition to humor to virtually anything you could you could name that that has a, a long history in human behavior okay so there's something more inherently hardwired in there it's not hardwired and that's the, okay, the well, hard no. part to wrap your mind around uh is that the genome is constrained by the fact that it evolves so slowly and you know it evolves faster than we used to think but it's still slow Whereas culture can evolve very, very quickly. How, so how fast are we talking? Sorry, just to get to get a grasp on this. How fast can culture evolve? Oh, how fast can the genome evolve? Well, it really depends on what uh, quadrant you're talking about. And in fact, there's a vast spectrum of evolvability in genome space. So, for example, there's certain things like immunological uh, code that needs to be able to update very quickly. So, you know, in a generation, I mean, actually, there's no reason to hold it at a generation. Your immune system evolves within your lifetime based on exposure. Hmm. Um, and so that's a pretty interesting phenomenon. So when necessary, the genome can ratchet up a very rapid process. But it's nothing compared to um, a cultural process, which you know, my favorite example, I guess, is the Boxing Day tsunami of was it two thousand six or or four? Or you could be right. Six. Well, I should know, but in any case, um, that tsunami caused a huge number of people on Earth who didn't know what a tsunami was. I mean, you can actually see in the videos that were taken that day all of these people who did not understand what the receding water meant. Mm, you're um, right, and people by the way, walked out. Two thousand four. 2004. Um, so people actually walked out to, you know, to their deaths because the sea receded and they were tantalized by seeing seafloor where they'd never seen it before. Um, so tsunami was a concept that was not well understood across the human population. But within 24 hours of that tsunami having occurred, uh, in every corner of the globe that had access to the internet, People were pretty well versed in what a tsunami was and how to recognize the signs that one's coming. Mm. So that's a pretty amazing rate of change. You know, compare that rate of update. That's like a software update where you get the concept of tsunami loaded into your mind in a yeah. very vivid way. Um, imagine that that was a, in some way, a genetically encoded phenomenon and that in order to get the entire human population to be aware of it, people who had the genetic code for tsunami had to replace people who didn't, you know, yeah. I'm talking about thousands of years before it spreads around the globe compared to, you know, hours. I guess this goes to your point almost about that you made in that, that in your, in your podcast with, with Joe Rogan and, and Jordan Pearson, when you were talking about the sort of genetic, explanation and basis for racism essentially in that you had people who are you had the, the the fact that people are 
hardwired well not hardwired again to, that's that's not the what you said that's not the right word to use but genetically predisposed to be suspicious and maybe a little bit fearful of the other because of uh what's the word i'm looking for like disease that would have uh, potentially afflicted people hundreds or thousands of years ago when they were traveling into new lands. Yeah, well, there's lots of reasons to fear the other, including just the simple fact that um, other populations are potentially competitors for the same limited resource. And so, you know, again, I, I need to be very careful anytime I talk this way that people understand I am not advocating what I think the genes view of um, the genes rather xenophobic view of the world is. But I am pointing out that the reason that we who are here on earth today are here is because our genes have predisposed us to be suspicious of things that put our lineages at risk um, and have caused us to be curious about things that have given our lineages uh, the ability to to innovate and you know create insight and things like that. Um, so anyway, our biases have served our genes, and unfortunately, a xenophobic bias has been genetically valuable. I find it abhorrent, but it would be foolish to imagine that the genes were not suspicious of competitor genes just because we are talking at the level of populations. And so anyway, this is some place that I am at odds with many of the members of my field who will say that kin selection doesn't function at this particular scale. I will argue that it does function at this scale um, and that it in fact has to function at this scale and that one of the greatest challenges for us moving forward is to unhook it and to unhook it even though uh, we will not have complete buy-in. You know, it would be nice if humanity could decide together to get over its xenophobia, but that's not likely to happen. And what you don't want to do is have uh, us enlightened folks give up our xenophobia and then be defeated by xenophobes who resisted <laughs> the temptation, right? So anyway, that's, that's a, a big challenge, yeah. and I, I think it's an important one. Well, to make a to to make to put a slightly more positive spin on it, there is it's it's something as you sort of mentioned that we are intellectually capable of learning to sort of disassociate ourselves with, in that we can learn to be more accepting and less xenophobic. And there, there's, oh, yeah. there's sort of there's like so there's proof that that well there's to your point, proof of that there is more to xenophobia than just the individual's racism in that there are untold num exam numbers of examples throughout history of wars fought over different colors of skin or different beliefs or, diff or simply different villages that were inhabited. Like right down to the scale of, of two towns fighting each other because they're different and they're a different time. Well, um, we need to be careful. Oh, go ahead, finish. I was going to say, at the same time, there are examples of people not doing that and learning to to move beyond that and and, and living in in multicultural societies, like uh, like we have in a lot of 
of nations across the world now and that people are sort of not accustomed to i don't want to use that word but you know people people can see past those those things that maybe in the past would have been something that would have colored your opinion of people and that there is well no go ahead ahead. there, there are are examples that yes we can let genetic programming or genetic sort of suggestion of fear of the other dictate the way we want to move forward and we can also allow it just allow it to be as you said unhooked from the way we view the world well all right here's the problem i totally agree with your analysis that you can find um two entities fighting over difference and they're not really fighting over skin color they're not really fighting over ideological differences they are fighting over genetic distance um now there's often a resource at stake but um but the problem is that both the cases that you describe the case where two towns come to blows over their difference and two towns decide not to come to blows and to live peaceably together both of those things are driven by this i don't want to call it a genetic imperative because i'm arguing that it can be unhooked but um they are both driven by genetic interests in other words two towns may put their uh differences aside because it makes them safer against the third town that's going to attack them later <laughs> if they were right so the point is this is a kind of you know c- collaboration emerges out of xenophobia too and my point would be we are now at the final stage where um you know in groups have tended to grow in many cases where you know we see in uh in the new testament um jesus is advocating for you know in the story of the good samaritan and the golden rule he is advocating for a broadening of the in group it's a it's an update of a religious belief system that broadens the number of potential collaborators. Um, what we have to do, and I am not arguing that this is easy. I would think it, I think it is actually the hardest problem that humanity faces. What we have to do is finally broaden the in-group to include all of us. Not easy because those who resist the temptation to do that will have an immediate advantage. So we have to do it in a way that does not provide that advantage in order for it to work. Now, that said, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that we are handed a bunch of arbitrary levels of difficulty. And on the one hand, we are programmed not to in-group everybody, because historically that has not been a good idea. It's what we evolutionists would call group selection. Um, on the other hand, we are wired to put aside differences in order to fight a common enemy. Now, what I would tell you is we are in a position where all of humanity now has a common enemy. We are not really wired to recognize that because in general, the only common enemy worth worrying about are other people. Mm. Um, and that's not the case here. Well, you know, we have seen the enemy and it is us. Our technology is now jeopardizing our planet. That enemy is reason for us to actually in-group the entire species and pull in the same direction so we don't destroy ourselves. That makes perfect logical sense. 
And the question is, can we overcome the tribalism that is wired in at a deeper level and recognize that if we were to actually understand the interests of all of those tribes, none of us are going to get to be here 150 or 200 years from now if we don't overcome the problems of the present. And so we have to effectively think past what our genes have predisposed us to see and understand that our larger interests now require us to do something very counterintuitive, but nonetheless in our interest. I realize I probably said interest twice there, but, um, but it is, I believe it is possible, but we do have to be a bit more broad minded to get there. Well, if it's that easy, no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, um, anyway, we've, we've gone on quite long. Uh, So I think that's, that's a nice note on which to, to wrap things up. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed chatting. Um, and, and, you know, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to Brett. He's a really brilliant guy. If you want to sign up to Brett's free primer on evolutionary thinking, you can do so by following the link in the description. And you can find a link there to sign up to subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out on more interviews that we're doing. Later in the week, we've got Callum Curry from SUST, which is a new market research and polling firm based out of Northern Ireland. And that's a really interesting conversation. So make sure you sign up if you want to hear that. Until next time, thanks.